I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no Defense Department consensus on the meaning of those lights in the sky. Welcome to Encounter 56. We've got some breaking news going on right now. It appears that the U.S. military has investigated UFOs. We've been seeing stories from various outlets about people who worked on top-secret classified UFO projects coming clean and telling the public what they know, and today, we're going to dig into those investigations. I'm talking, of course, about Project Sign from 1948. What did you think I was talking about? It seems that whenever word gets out about a military or intelligence operation to investigate strange things in the sky... It's treated as something completely novel, especially if somebody is making money off it or stands to make money off it. UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. Thanks, Jane. But from the very beginning of the modern saucer phenomenon, the military, particularly the Air Force, has been interested in figuring out what threats these strange things might represent, which makes sense if only from the point of view of, of you know, airspace defense. So today, we're going to look at one of the early efforts to figure out what was going on with those wacky flying saucers. So, in the summer of 1947, while we usually think about Roswell and Kenneth Arnold, and and maybe, if you're really cool, the Maury Island incident, the truth is that there were a lot of other sightings going on at the time as well. And in response, the Army Air Forces, soon to become the U.S. Air Force, began to look closely at what people were reporting seeing. By late July 1947, both public and official concern were at a level where the military felt the need to make some determinations about what people were reporting. Lieutenant Colonel George Garrett, part of the Office of Intelligence, comma, requirements, drafted a report on 16 credible cases and reached the following conclusions. One, this flying saucer situation is not at all imaginary or seeing too much in some natural phenomenon. Something is really flying around. 2. Lack of topside inquiries when compared to the prompt and demanding inquiries that have originated topside upon former events give more than ordinary weight to the possibility that this is a domestic project about which the president, etc., know. 3. Whatever the objects are, this much can be said of their physical appearance. The surface of these objects is metallic, indicating a metallic skin at least. When a trail is observed, it is lightly colored, a blue-brown haze that is similar to a rocket engine's exhaust. Contrary to a rocket of the solid type, one observation indicates that the fuel may be throttled, which would indicate a liquid rocket engine. As to shape, all observations state that the object is circular, or at least elliptical, flat on the bottom and slightly domed on the top. The size estimates place it somewhere near the size of a C-54 or a Constellation. Some reports describe two tabs located at the rear and symmetrical about the axis of flight rotation. Flights have been reported from three to nine of them, flying good formation on each other, with speeds always above 300 knots. The disks oscillate laterally while flying along. 
Air Force officials seemed increasingly certain that these were not U.S. aircraft, at least U.S. aircraft that anyone was willing to talk about. In many of the reports, there's wiggle room for these being secret projects or prototypes that the report writer was not cleared to know about. But in September 1947, one of the most significant moments in early saucer studies occurred. Lieutenant General Nathan Twining of the Air Material Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base wrote to his superiors with some observations and recommendations. The phenomenon reported is something real and not visionary or fictitious. There are objects probably approximating the shape of a disk of such appreciable size as to appear to be as large as man-made aircraft. There is a possibility that some of the incidents may be caused by natural phenomena, such as meteors. The reported operating characteristics, such as extreme rates of climb, maneuverability, and action, which must be considered evasive when sighted or contacted by friendly aircraft and radar, lend belief to the possibility that some of the objects are controlled either manually, automatically, or remotely. Due consideration must be given to the following. The possibility that these objects are of domestic origin, the product of some high security project not known to this command. The lack of physical evidence in the shape of crash-recovered exhibits which would undeniably prove the existence of these objects, and the possibility that some foreign nation has a form of propulsion, possibly nuclear, which is outside of our domestic knowledge. In December 1947, the Air Force established Project Sign to investigate the increasing number of UFO sightings and to arrive at some explanation of whether or not they represented a threat to the United States. In addition to official government reports, a good source of information about SIGN is Edward J. Rupolt's 1956 book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. We've mentioned Rupelt's book before in Encounter 305 when we talked about the Robertson panel. Just to remind you, Rupelt was head of Project Blue Book during its earliest years, from 1951 to 1953, but also wrote about the events that led to the establishment of Blue Book. His book revealed several things that had not been known before, including the existence and work of Project Sign. And one of the things I find particularly useful about the book is Rupel's discussion of the varied attitudes toward the phenomenon that existed within the military hierarchy. Also, and this is key, he states authoritatively that it's not UFO, it's UFO, which means all those British people I've been laughing at for years were right. Rupolt discusses a number of cases that the sign folks investigated, highlighting three in particular as being, in his words, classics. The most famous is probably the January 7, 1948 case, in which Thomas Mantell, a captain in the Kentucky Air National Guard, was killed when his P-51 Mustang crashed while investigating, or chasing, rather, a UFO. Now, Project Sign existed at this time, but was secret, so there's no memo saying Project Sign will investigate this UFO incident. But we do have a memo from Colonel Howard McCoy, who was involved with Project Sign at the time. It has been brought to the attention of this office that an official report has been made regarding the National Guard P-51 aircraft that crashed as a result of chasing an unidentified object on 7 January 1948. Information contained in this report may contribute greatly in the accomplishment of intelligence investigations of unidentified flying objects, or so-called flying disks. It is requested, therefore, that a copy of this report be made available to this command as soon as possible. The initial explanation of what Mantell was chasing was the planet Venus. Later, under Project Blue Book, the Air Force determined that Mantell had died chasing a top-secret skyhook weather balloon. 
Another case that sign personnel investigated was the Childs Witted case, named for two pilots of an Eastern Airlines DC-3. Outside Montgomery, Alabama, on the night of July 24, 1948, the pilots saw what they thought was, at first, a jet. Ruppelt provides a vivid description of the event. Childs saw a light dead ahead and closing fast. His first reaction was that it was a jet. But in an instant, he realized that even a jet couldn't close as fast as this light was closing. Childs said he reached over, gave Witted, the other pilot, a quick tap on the arm and pointed. The UFO was now almost on top of them. Childs racked the DC-3 into a tight left turn. Just as the UFO flashed by about 700 feet to the right, the DC-3 hit turbulent air. Witted looked back just as the UFO pulled up into a steep climb. The weirdness of the case, as well as multiple witnesses, Ruppelt explained, pushed sign personnel into taking a firm stand on the possible origin of the UFOs. In intelligence, if you have something to say about some vital problem, you write a report that is known as an estimate of the situation. A few days after the DC-3 was buzzed, the people at ATIC decided that the time had arrived to make an estimate of the situation. The situation was the UFOs. The estimate was that they were interplanetary. It was a rather thick document with a black cover, and it was printed on legal-sized paper. Stamped across the front were the words, Top Secret. It contained the Air Force's analysis of many of the UFO incidents I've told you about, plus many similar ones. All of them had come from scientists, pilots, and other equally credible observers, and each one was an unknown. When the estimate was completed, typed, and approved, it started up through channels to higher command echelons. It drew considerable comment, but no one stopped it on its way up. Now, that's something, isn't it? There's been some controversy about this report. No one's been able to get their hands on a verified copy of the actual thing, but Ruppelt's book was vetted by the Air Force, and they didn't take issue with him mentioning it. J. Allen Hynek also confirmed the estimate's existence. So, is this disclosure or confirmation? I mean, you've got the government saying these things could be interplanetary, but... I don't know, not really. It's not the government saying something. It's the judgment of some people who looked at some of the cases. Jan Aldrich, who runs the Project 1947 website, which is an amazing source of information on the early years of ufology, has a very informative article about that document and and other documents of the time that have been questioned and, and investigated. And there's a link to that in the show notes. Later, um back to the whole interplanetary idea later, there would be some pushback against this idea. When Ruppelt says no one stopped it on its way up, um, it was at the the very top that it would be um, resisted. So the third encounter that Sign dealt with was the so-called Gorman dogfight. In October 1948, George Gorman of the North Dakota Air National Guard, flying his P-51 Mustang, attempted to engage with what he described as a ball of light about five to eight inches in diameter. It evaded him skillfully, and he was unable to safely pursue it. Fortunately, unlike Captain Mantell, Gorman survived his encounter, but at one point his, his fighter did stall out. In his statement about the incident, Gorman was fairly clear about the strange properties demonstrated by the object he chased. I'm convinced that there was definite thought behind its maneuvers. I am further convinced that the object was governed by the laws of inertia because its acceleration was rapid, but not immediate, and although it was able to turn fairly tight at considerable speed, 
It still followed a natural curve. When I attempted to turn with the object, I blacked out temporarily due to excessive speed. I'm in fairly good physical condition, and I do not believe that there are many, if any, pilots who could withstand the turn and speed affected by the object and remain conscious. The object was not only able to outturn and outspeed my aircraft, but was able to attain a far steeper climb, and was able to maintain a constant rate of climb far in excess of my aircraft. The Air Force would eventually conclude that Gorman was chasing a weather balloon. While Sign continued its work, the interplanetary explanation-friendly estimate of the situation worked its way up the chain of command. Ruppelt recounted that General Hoyt Vandenberg rejected the estimate and it was, quote, batted back down, with the general citing a lack of proof to support the interplanetary explanation. The estimate died a quick death. Some months later, it was completely declassified and relegated to the incinerator. A few copies, one of which I saw, were kept as mementos of the golden days of the UFOs. Although a bona fide verified copy of the estimate has proved elusive, we do have some testimony about it from people involved with the military UFO investigations. First is Major Dewey Fournay, who worked under Ruppelt on Project Blue Book. These audio clips, uh, the next two audio clips, are from Wendy Connor's Faded Disc Archive, and I've got to say that the quality is not great. I did what I could with it, so try to hear it the best you can. So, at the very least, from, from the major's testimony there, we know there was a report, he saw a file copy, he's not sure what the motivations were of the people making the claims in it, but thinks something might have been up with it, I think. Uh, next is Dr. George Valley, who would contribute to the final Project Sign report, and he's explaining why um, the estimate might have been disregarded by those in charge. I presume he would uh, have... Uh shown this document to around and some of his majors or, or lieutenant colonels would have shown it to a few members of the SAB, all of whom would have laughed at it, and that would have been reported back to the general. Since the general, like everybody else, had much more confidence in the members of the SAB, each of whom was a leading scientist at some university or at the General Electric or telephone companies. Uh, so he would he would obviously take their judgment and ask for their criticism, and I have no doubt they all peed on this document you're talking about, but I was not one of them. So despite the reluctance among the top brass to accept an interplanetary explanation, despite their propensity to pee on it, as Dr. Valley said, Project Sign did continue, and Ruppelt sort of explains what the effect of this was, of, of this sort of 
batting back down to this report was on the people of Project Sign. The top Air Force Command's refusal to buy the interplanetary theory didn't have any immediate effect upon the morale of Project Sign because the reports were getting better. Now, this is not the only time that Ruppelt will discuss the increasing quality and interestingness, for lack of a better word, of the reports. But regardless of the quality of those reports, Project Sign's days were numbered, and there would be a transition from Project Sign to something called Project Grunge. Not Grunge, Grudge. Project Grunge was something much different, and I'm not cleared to talk to you about that. The transition was signaled by an order issued on February 11th, 1949, and it was officially explained as being necessary because sign, the sign code name or cryptonym, had been compromised. Ruppelt had a different perspective on this, and it's interesting to see his assessment on what went on within the hierarchy of the Air Force, and we'll get to that in a little bit. There was a final report from sign in February of 1949, but it's not super edifying. While it's interesting to note that they did investigate the possibility of interplanetary explanations for some sightings, the writers of the final report weren't too enthusiastic about the idea. The possibility that some of the incidents may represent technical developments far in advance of knowledge available to engineers and scientists of this country has been considered. No facts are available to personnel at this command that will permit an objective assessment of this possibility. All information so far presented on the possible existence of spaceships from another planet or of aircraft propelled by an advanced type of atomic power plant have been largely conjecture. Based on experience with nuclear power plant research in this country, the existence on Earth of such engines of a small enough size and weight to have powered the objects described is highly improbable. Reports of unidentified flying objects are not peculiar to the present time. In the Books of Charles Ford by Tiffany Taylor, published in 1941 by Henry Holt and Company, New York, similar phenomena are described as having been sighted during past centuries. In the last war, numerous sightings of balls of fire in the air were reported by bomber crews. It can't be anything weird because there can't be anything weird like that that we know of. And besides, people have seen this kind of stuff before. It's not the most thorough debunking of an interplanetary explanation. But this may be the earliest reference to Charles Fort in an official government report. If you found an earlier one, let me know. There were also a couple fun footnotes as to the veracity of some of the witnesses. Incident number 18. It has now been definitely determined that both the photograph and story were a hoax perpetrated for publicity and money. UFO might just as well stand... Not now, Jane. We've got another one to listen to. Incident 84. The person making the report on this incident was determined to be an excitable person, very talkative, and possessing an exaggerated imagination, and inclined to impress people with his continuous chatter. In the interest of transparency, I should probably put inclined to impress people with his continuous chatter somewhere on my resume. Now, Project Sign was a secret, but in order to provide the public with reassurances that they were looking into the UFO issue, 
The National Military Establishment, which was the organization that existed for a brief time after the War Department went away and before the modern Department of Defense took shape. Anyway, the National Military Establishment shared a version of the sign results with the public, referring to the investigation as Project Saucer. Here's Major General William McKee discussing the results of Project Saucer with the press. During two years of thorough investigation, no evidence was found which would indicate that the reported flying saucers were anything but the result of natural phenomena. On the other hand, all the evidence indicated that the reports of unidentified flying objects could be accounted for under three major headings. One, misinterpretation of various conventional objects. Two, a mild form of hysteria. Three, or simple hoaxes. It has been suggested that what people actually have been seeing is the result of some of our own secret experiments guided missiles or new types of planes or flying weapons. This is emphatically not the case. None of the three military departments nor any other agency in government is conducting experiments, classified or otherwise, with disc-shaped flying objects which could be a basis for the reported phenomena. Natural phenomenon, hysteria, hoaxes. Absolutely nothing of ours absolutely nothing that is strange or threatening in any possible way. Got it? What have you all been looking at for 70 years? There's nothing going on. General McKee said so. Who are you to doubt General McKee? So, Project Sign went away, having declared the saucers to be harmless, if they existed at all, which they don't. However, Project Grudge would succeed it, because... The Air Force isn't going to stop looking at strange things in the air. They're the Air Force. In his book, Ruppelt traced a change in attitude in the UFO crew that was running things under the later years of Project Saucer and Project Grudge. He explains that there were two factions. On one side was the faction that still believed in flying saucers. These people, come hell or high water, were hanging on to their original ideas. Some thought the UFOs were interplanetary spaceships, others weren't quite as bold and just believed that a good deal more should be known about the UFOs before they were so completely written off. These people weren't a bunch of nuts or crackpots either. They ranged down through the ranks from generals and top-grade civilians. On the outside, their views were backed up by civilian scientists. On the other side were those who didn't believe in flying saucers. At one time, many of them had been believers. When the UFO reports were pouring in back in 1947 and 1948, they were just as sure that the UFOs were real as the people they were now scoffing at. But they had changed their minds. Some of them had changed their minds because they had seriously studied the UFO reports and just couldn't see any evidence that the UFOs were real. But many of them could see the I don't believe bandwagon pulling out in front and just jumped on. Ruppelt also tries to explain the emergence of the anti-saucer faction and places some blame for the way that Project Sign went down on that original memo from General Twining. The anti-saucer faction was born because of an old psychological trait. People don't like to be losers. To be a loser makes one feel inferior and incompetent. On September 23, 1947, when the chief of ATIC sent a letter to the commanding general of the Army Air Forces stating that UFOs were real, intelligence committed themselves. They had to prove it. 
They tried for a year and a half with no success. Officers on top began to get anxious and press began to get anxious. They wanted an answer. Intelligence had tried one answer. The then top secret estimate of the situation that, quote, proved that UFOs were real, but it was kicked back. The people on the UFO project began to think maybe the brass didn't consider them too sharp, so they tried a new hypothesis. UFOs don't exist. In no time, they found that this was easier to prove, and it got recognition. Before, if an especially interesting UFO report came in, and the Pentagon wanted an answer, all they'd get was an, it could be real, but we can't prove it. Now, such a request got a quick, snappy, it was a balloon. Everybody felt fine. I desperately love Rupelt's cynicism here. The idea that, well, why did the government back off the interplanetary explanation? Because it was easier to go with another explanation, and they were tired of looking like they weren't coming up with any answers when General Twining, the chief of ATIC, had said, they're UFOs, we're going to get some answers. Okay, we're going to get some answers. It, it was a balloon. It was Venus. It was something else. This discussion of pro and anti-UFO factions is a good reminder that the government or the military is not a monolithic entity with a hive mind. Different points of view can come to dominate or have influence at different times and in different circumstances. In assessing these early efforts from the Air Force, I think it's useful to sort of trace out what Ruppelt shows in his book. What he shows is that in the summer of 1947, in the autumn of 1947, early 1948, the Air Force project to investigate this started off from an attitude of, of oh my gosh, what is going on? What is, this could be anything. It could be from another planet. It could be secret weapons. Gosh, we just don't know. And over time, that shifts to what he calls a complete contempt for anyone who even mentioned the words flying saucer. He says, quote, early in 1950, the project for all practical purposes was closed out. At least it rated only minimum effort. Those in power now reasoned that if you didn't mention the words flying saucers, the people would forget them and the saucers would go away. But this reasoning was false. For instead of vanishing, the UFO reports got better and better. End quote. Now, despite the reports getting better and better, Project Grudge would concentrate on having, in Ruppelt's words, quote, a two-phase program of UFO annihilation. The first phase consisted of explaining every UFO report. The second phase was to tell the public how the Air Force had solved all the sightings. This, Project Grudge reasoned, would put an end to UFO reports. That didn't seem to work out at all. Project Sign personnel, who were thought to be sympathetic to UFO investigation, were replaced with people more committed to this annihilation program. But as we'll see in future episodes, and as we can see in the news over the past few years, there would be a consistent interest in strange stuff in the sky from the Air Force, the Navy, and other elements of the defense establishment. Some would have you believe that all this points to an interplanetary explanation. I'm not so sure. I think it's more likely that some combination of due diligence over things in our airspace and personal inf- interest in the UFO topic on the part of individuals account for a lot of this work. And that work will continue, and periodically the work gets revealed, and a new TV show starts up and dies, and then the whole cycle starts over. Ad infinitum, ad nauseum. It's all part of the rollicking, merry-go-round world 
of the Saucer Life. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. And thank you so much to those who have um, chosen to to provide some financial support to the show. It's uh, it's it's really really appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the Saucer Life wherever you find podcasts. The Saucer Life Encounter Fifty Six is a production of Chizo Media. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.